Welcome to the 7th Art Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Robertson. I'm one of three producers on the show. Uh, joining me here is my co-producer and host of the show, Christopher Heron. Chris, how are you? Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, so the interview you're about to hear is with New York documentary filmmaker Matt Wolf. Matt was in town for the 2013 Hot Docs Festival. Uh, he had a film in the festival called Teenage, which is an adaptation of John Savage's book on the beginning of youth culture. Um, and it's kind of a collage documentary similar to his other work, uh, notably Wild Combination, which is um, a documentary on uh, Arthur Russell. I remember a film about Joe Brainerd. So, Chris, what did you? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I really enjoyed this interview. I mean, it was one of the few in a while that we were able to do that were true seventh art interviews where we discuss all of the films. So, we, I mean, Matt only has the the, the two features and the. Uh, installation film on uh, Joe Brainerd, but we were able to productively talk about all three and uh, I think give a a really good summation of his his career. I think one thing in particular that was interesting about it was kind of talking about his formal qualities because his his documentaries are are usually formally quite interesting and quite unique from a lot of documentaries that come out and I was glad that we were able to kind of distill that a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's a great interview and I hope you enjoy it. It's hard to periodize the recent past. Are we filming? filming yeah. This right now? Oh, okay. We'll decide later whether we <laughs> use it or not. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think that, uh, well, that, you know, I totally fetishize archival yeah. footage for that reason. And I think stuff from the recent past will have that kind of, um, I don't know, that, that intrigue to it mm. in the future. And you, do you think of like period specificity as far as the technology you use to like, especially with your reenactments, like what you're going to shoot on for that yeah. period? Yeah, I mean, I really like tracing footsteps and that also, I do that in a production way too. So like tracing the footsteps of what a camera person or even just an individual, an amateur filmmaker at the time would have. Mm. So for like Wild Combination, we used all these VHS kind of camcorders and Super 8, and, and for this film, it was a lot more elaborate in terms of um, kind of identifying what 16 millimeter looked like mm. back in those periods, and then um, using non-digital techniques to degrade our material so that it resembled that actual footage, because mm. I want my recreations to look like real archival footage. Yeah. What, what is, like, what is, how do you conceptualize how the viewer is, is perceiving it, like, specifically, like, the technologies used? Do you think that, like, maybe they're not noticing it with some of them, and... The goal for me is to not jar the viewer yeah. so that they're not taken out of the film thinking about its construction, but I know that there are viewers who probably aren't aware that some of the material that I've created is mm. archival footage. Um, 
but it's not about tricking people or um, creating a kind of puzzle or game of what's real, what's not real, and these questions of authenticity aren't really at the center of what I'm doing. Mm. It's more just about um, creating a cohesive, kind of formally consistent experience in the film. Hmm. It makes me think of uh, Edvard Munch, the, mm -hmm. the Watkins film. Have yeah, you yeah. seen that? Yeah. I actually haven't seen it, but I've always wanted to see it. Because like, I wouldn't say that that's jarring or troubling, but like, I think that there's an awareness, like maybe a positive awareness. Like, that I'd like the viewer to be conscious yeah. that what they're seeing is constructed, but to not be kind of distracted by the filmmaking, but for it to feel super organic. And mm. that's why I use kind of organic techniques to degrade stuff instead of trying to achieve these looks digitally. I was really inspired by Woody Allen's film Zelig, yeah. which, um, you know, it's like conceptually Woody Allen's inserting his own persona into history and it's, um, you know, uh, Gordon Willis, the cinematographer, used non-digital techniques to create the look of mm -hmm. 1920s newsreels and super successful and in, in a way when you start watching the film you you are kind of impressed by the technique but but you I think quickly um, just accept it and watch it as a film and, and it's there's a consistent a consistency between the newsreels that are integrated with the footage of Woody Allen and that really inspired me for teenage mm. what about the concept of the the archive like we keep saying archival but like just the actual like your interest in archives mm. I'm more interested in hidden histories than I am in archives, but just the notion that there's biographies and cultural information that's not well known mm. and that you have to do some digging to find it. And the visual evidence is what's most useful and also most interesting mm. to me. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in making the past feel contemporary and trying to find kind of resonance and ideas and material from previous generations. and. So I work in archives to do that, but also I, I'm just aesthetically drawn to archival photographs and found mm. footage and material. And with Teenage, <coughs> is that kind of why the soundtrack is so contemporary? This, put the score in the soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, that was just the overall premise of the film is take archival footage from the past and combine it with contemporary music and it transforms mm. the material so that a flapper girl who's dancing um, feels like someone who's dancing today, except the kind of styles and signifiers are different. And every time I tried putting period appropriate music in a traditional way to that footage, it felt very like grandma, like yeah. this is my grandparents' music or my great grandparents' music. And that defeats the idea of the film, which is to, to make the old feel new and to make the, these past histories feel present. And so, yeah, I always knew that that, that would be a huge part of the film and also just that music would play wall to wall throughout the film almost all mm. the archival footage is silent and um, I think of the film almost like a record where you listen to it and you can let it just kind of wash over you and have an experience with it or you can listen to the narration almost like lyrics to music mm. and that can deepen and enhance the ideas and experience of the film obviously so it's meant to be a very musical experience. And what was the, the relationship like with uh, with Bradford Cox? Um, Bradford didn't compose music to picture. He worked in a really concentrated period and made a huge body of original music. And then I worked with my editor to kind of find the right home for these cues. Mm. And Bradford, there's a little bit of back and forth with Bradford. And then um, sound design played a big part in terms of like creating and uh, integrating all the different musical components. Mm. like. There's a lot of kind of musical elements in the sound design and 
sometimes period music does kind of filter in, but almost like a dream. It, it, it kind of like phases in and out of the contemporary music. So um, that's that was a, a huge aspect of sound design to kind of make the score feel like one complete soundscape. Mm. And, the, and the soundtrack, the tracks used kind of uh, oscillate through time. Like there's like the wire stuff, there's yeah. the, the yeah. more contemporary electric. I hadn't, I, initially the concept was to have Bradford make everything, yeah. but it became not feasible because there's such a range of music in the film and it was becoming just a little like kind of monotonous to mm. have one kind of musical kind of point of view driving the entire film. Um, his, his music makes up the majority of the film's soundtrack, but um, I liked playing, mashing up the periods a little bit with the music. I don't know if all viewers will recognize the Krautrock or um, you know the, some of the kind of post-punk stuff that's mm. in there, but it helped create a kind of range and movement in the tone of the film mm. too to do that. And what was the decision, like this was an adaptation, right? So yeah. how was that process of adapting something into a kind of doc? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a strong adaptation. It's really yeah. inspired by John's book more than based on, um, in the sense that his book covers a much larger range of material. It's from 1845 to 1945 to chart the prehistory of the teenager. He also covered some stories in France. And <coughs> our film telescoped into America, England, and Germany. It starts at 1904, it ends at 1945. And um, really the, the guiding force in terms of deciding what storylines to tell is what could we find archival footage of. I didn't want to tell the story if there was one image for it. Everything needed to have a strong basis and real archival footage. And um, a big feature in John's book are the biographies of individual teenagers. Mm. And that was one of my favorite parts of his book, but we chose to kind of zero in on four characters. and they provide a kind of composite portrait of the teenager that's about to be born and represent different kind of periods and genders and classes and races and experiences and types. And um, that was, that's a real departure from John's book because I, I wanted to take this kind of sweeping cultural history and to create emotional beats within it mm. that um, allowed for a different kind of experience for the viewer. Mm. And that's where I use the recreations. Yeah, and there's like, they kind of rhyme with that autobiography as opposed to biography, because the, the voiceover for those characters tends to be, it's personal pronouns. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, those characters that are the subject of the recreations, they're real people, mm. and, and they are themselves kind of hidden histories. They're unknown figures, like, and they're all derived from real books and diaries. So, you know, Brenda Dean Paul, the 1920s flapper, she wrote an, an autobiography called My First Life. And, and the bright young things in England are, are pretty well known. Mm. Um, Cecil Beaton, Stephen Tennant, but she was a lesser known figure. And her story felt very contemporary to me. She seems like a kind of Lindsay Lohan figure. Um, you know, a woman who's obsessed with paparazzi attention, who kind of has a public demise because of drugs and people love to hate and, and moralize and judge. And um, so that's where she came from. Melita Mashman is a big part of John's book and she wrote just an incredibly chilling autobiography called Account Rendered, which describes how she kind of became absorbed into fascism. Mm. And, and um, uh, it was, that really inspired me because so much of the Hitler youth imagery is, focuses on these kind of hypnotic and mesmerizing images of the masses. Mm. I just thought it was really important to kind of root that in the experience and emotional logic of an individual. Mm. 
And then Tommy Scheel was like a super inspiring story to me. He's a German swing kid who used American music and British fashion to rebel against the Nazi regime. And um, I knew I wanted to do that one, but for all these characters, I wanted there to be not only my recreations, but also real archival footage. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a real challenge to find archival footage of German swing kids, but we did. And um, yeah, just to me, Tommy's story, this German swing kid, it's kind of the colliding of the two themes of the film, you know, the kind of political unrest and the significance of teenage rebellion in a political context. And then just kids being kids, party culture, having fun, innovating new style, loving music. These kind of collide in Tommy's story where just as being just a normal kid and celebrating kind of popular culture, he's also being a courageous political activist. And um, then finally, Warren Walls, our fourth character, he's an African-American mm -hmm. Boy Scout. It was really, really hard to represent the experiences and stories of youth of color from this period mm -hmm. because they just were excluded from the official record. There aren't newsreels about African-American life. But we, we kind of struck gold when we found some amazing unedited footage of Harlem from the 1940s. And then Warren is a very small part of John's book, but um, there was an anthropologist, or, or excuse me, a sociologist who in the 1940s wrote a book called Negro Youth at the Crossroads. And within it was this lengthy interview with an African-American teenager, and it was a really vivid and poignant depiction of what it would be like to be a, a black teenager during World War II, which was a very racist time. And um, I was really inspired to bring Warren to life, but unlike the other characters who are kind of more extreme or flamboyant personalities, he's kind of like an ordinary kid who's just trying to do good in school and do well by his parents to succeed, but he's hampered by the prejudices of the era. Mm. I found that to make him an extraordinary person, even though his, his kind of lifestyle was pretty ordinary. Mm. So um, these were the kind of four characters that I thought kind of went pieced together form this new model of youth, the, the teenager. So with the hidden histories, it seems like that's an aspect of the film, and also the, his, the, the more visible history of our, what, what is available in the archive that you're mentioning. Like yeah. Sometimes they don't cross over. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious where you feel the film positions itself in relation to the avant-garde's uh, hidden history films, like that has a tradition there, yeah. versus like the more visible tradition of even something like um, Ken Burns. Yeah, or, or I was going to say even Lenny Riefenstahl, which is kind of mm -hmm. in the canon. So those images, we kind of understand when they yeah. come up. Well, the film is an essay film, and that does have an avant-garde tradition mm -hmm. from you know Chris Marker to more recently Johan Grimm and Prez, and, um, um, and also the British essayist uh, Adam Curtis, whose, mm -hmm. yeah, whose yeah. films I love. And um, in my work, I kind of do like to use some kind of experimental filmmaking strategies, although I am trying to also engage in storytelling, mm. and, and the work is designed to reach a broad audience on television and in movie theaters. Mm. So I kind of walk that line in my work. I think Teenage could have been a much more abstract film mm. that provided less context, um, although some people perceive it as a very abstract film, despite it having its, its own narrative. and and aiming to create a cultural history that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, mm. um, rather than, say, a film installation in, in a museum or gallery. And um, yeah, in terms of the kind of conventions of historical filmmaking, to me it was two choices. You could make a film that kind of explains the cultural history and uses archival footage to illustrate fairly literally the, the ideas and history that's being kind of mm. ex explained. 
or I could use archival footage to express ideas. And I definitely went the more expressionistic route with the film. So I think it's very difficult to go. I am in an in-between space with it, but it's very difficult. It's kind of, you need these kind of experts and historians providing context, explaining everything to have your kind of traditional multi-part television series. And my film is kind of more dreamlike mm. and it's really experienced from the headspace of a teenager. Um, I always had a kind of formal concept in that this film is so much about the way that society and adults speak about and discuss youth and about young people kind of rising um, in terms of their ability to define themselves. And much of the archival footage, such as newsreels, has adult voices explaining in an authoritative way what youth are, what youth are doing. And I wanted to strike a kind of um, dichotomy or tension with the actual voices of teenagers who were narrating their own mm. experience and seeing history unfold from their own point of view. So that kind of generational disconnect is in some ways conceptualized in the form of the film. But um, yeah, in terms of someone like Lenny Riefenstahl, she, she really uses the techniques of narrative filmmaking, tracking shots mm -hmm. and you know, um, experiments with depth of field and um, heroic composition mm -hmm. and um, her films are intoxicating, they're mesmerizing and, uh, and really most of the imagery of the Hitler youth is mesmerizing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think some of the essay films I mentioned such as Adam Curtis take on some of the conventions of propaganda except for an alternative kind of yeah. um, political perspective rather than a nationalistic or fascist point of view. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I, I don't think my film is really agitprop for teenagers, mm. but I, I suppose it's it has a kind of empowering design to it that that could have a it could make a teenager feel kind of inspired to mm. you know participate civically in some way. But it's it's not designed in the way to to really um, to really propagate some sort of message. It's a lot looser. Yeah, than that. at least that was my intention. Well, I think the recreations speak to that. Like, even I'm thinking of Barbara Hammer or people, who, filmmakers who have engaged in specifically queer hidden histories yeah, tend yeah. to employ that device. So yeah. that's also a, a kind of, it draws attention to what's not seen because it has to be recreated. Uh -huh. It was not covered at the time. Yeah, that's a great point, is a lot of the histories in this film are, um, you know, unfamiliar because they're marginalized. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the experience of an African American Boy Scout is marginalized yeah. from the you know definitive early 20th century history. Um, I think filmmakers and historians do a great job at at, at kind of reimagining or not reimagining, but kind of reassessing what these histories mm -hmm. are and adding more perspectives to them. But I'm I'm personally drawn to kind of the, the teenagers who worked against the grain, whether they were the kind of bright young people who were dressing up in drag and making home movies of themselves in the 1920s, or the German swing kids who were kind of using music to express mm. their politics. Um, so I, I think my preference for kind of the outsider marginalized types definitely plays out in the film. Well, it's definitely the impetus behind Wild Combination, which is another circumstance where there's not a lot of documentation, and even at the point that it was made, reception of, of Arthur Russell. Yeah. So uh, is that something that you see as a through line that goes through your work? Yeah, I mean, I have made a lot of biographical films. I like working with biographies, and I'm mostly interested in queer biographies. I like um, telling the story of people I perceive as kind of cultural heroes who have been lost um, Arthur Russell is a perfect example of that. 
Um, I see him, I have, I've kind of referred to it once somewhere as this genre of gentle gaze. Like, um, he just has this kind of gentle demeanor to mm. him, but also a certain level of intensity. Mm. And um, I'm not really like that necessarily, but I identify with it. And um, in, in a way, I'm imagining myself as a peer to mm. a lot of those artists, like Arthur Russell or Joe Brainerd, who I've made a yeah. film about. And um, yeah, I, I definitely think the interest in queer biography is related also into my interest in, in hidden histories. Mm. Um, and I think it's a generational thing too that a lot of people from my generation, especially gay people, are really interested in rehabilitating the legacies of cultural figures from the late 80s mm -hmm. and early 90s. And I think that a lot of young people are really interested in the past. I think it's a cornerstone of mm -hmm. youth culture, just finding an old record, going to a thrift store, finding something that other people don't have or feels obscure and reclaiming it and making it your own. I think that's something I definitely did as a teenager and it's something I still kind of do now in a way and it's something my peers do and, and that exchanging of information is a vital part of my life. Mm. And there's an exchange, I guess, with you as an artist and, and, and the, the, the figures as artists because mm -hmm. uh, the Arthur Russell one is a portrait of, of Arthur Russell and yeah. Joe Brainerd's about, like there's a kind of understanding that you're making artistic decisions. It's not a biography. It doesn't say a biography of yeah, Arthur Russell. Um, Totally. I like to have agency in what I'm doing too and I think of myself more as like an artist than mm. a kind of journalist. And um, so I'm really interested in experimenting with different types of filmmaking that kind of um, is designed to enhance the subject mm. matter that I'm working with. And I think with Teenage I've pushed that the furthest I've, I've ever gone. It's interesting because when you make documentaries oftentimes, unlike this conversation, the conversation is completely about the topic and yeah. the subject matter. And I found it's been interesting that this film premiered just two weeks ago, Teenage, so I've only started having these conversations, but the conversation is a lot about the filmmaking, which is interesting, possibly because the subject matter is complex and yeah. it's, it's hard to kind of pin down. But um, yeah, I, I'm really, I'm always trying to figure out ways to kind of push the conventions of documentary genre and challenging myself to imagine a kind of formal approach to my filmmaking that is kind of um, matches the spirit of the subject matter. Mm, yeah. Well, with Arthur Russell, you can, like, definitely the intro sets the, the tone, the credit sequence with mm. this kind of lyrical uh, tape being filmed in, like, an aquarium yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, you're already understanding that this is going to be a more a artistic treatment than, yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, yeah, I mean, I... It's interesting, most filmmakers start from the perspective of story. Mm. Like, this is a great story, I'm gonna make a film out of it. It's a, it's a great story, I'm gonna tell a story well. I always start with imagery, kind of that's my starting point. For the Arthur Russell film, it was like, I heard about this gay disco producer, avant-garde musician who would ride the Staten Island Ferry every day listening to cassettes of his own mixes. And that image was really intriguing to me. I ended up actually filming that image with an actor wearing Arthur Russell's actual clothes oh. and a VHS camera. And that kind of tracing of footsteps or the realization of an image that really resonates with me is kind of the most exciting part of the filmmaking for me. Um, and then I come to story later. I have to work really, really hard to mm. develop narrative. It doesn't, that's not my starting point. Um, and that's a kind of a more visual artist type approach to filmmaking, which one day hopefully I'll begin with narrative first. <laughs> it's a lot easier to go that way. But um, yeah, with 
I don't remember what the first image was of Teenage that I was really excited about, but I, it probably was the um, German swing kid robbery. Mm. Um, in, in this history, the German swing kids who were obsessed with gangster films from America took photographs mm. of a robbery um, and it was like a kind of like a conceptual art project. And we're talking like 1936 teenagers. <laughs> and um, just, I, I filmed a recreation of it, which of anything I did film, this is something people assume is archival footage more often than not. It's a, a, a footage of someone um, taking pictures of another robbing a villa. And uh, those actual photographs are really exciting to me because I remember reading about it thinking, this is like next level genius that people were doing this. And um, to make that image, because that image doesn't really exist, is um, that's what's exhilarating to mm. me. You know, I, I don't, creatively, I don't always just think, oh, I have this image, this idea in my mind, I gotta bring it to life. Like I'll know about a real thing, a real image that exists that you can't see and to bring that to life yeah. is more fascinating to me personally. That's kind of how I'm wired creatively. That, that reminded me of the Joe Brainerd doc where you've kind of taken this poem, this recital of it, uh -huh. and then kind of pulled it back like the camera and that and shown uh, the relationship with, uh, was it Rob? Um, um, Ron Padgett. Ron, Ron, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and now you have the two sitting like kind of point counterpoint. Yeah. It's interesting with that film because a, a close friend gave me, I remember, I thought, this is beautiful. And then I thought, well, it could kind of make a cool film. And then I found archival audio recordings of Joe reading it mm. and his voice is really amazing. And I said, okay, I want to do this, but how can it not just be a nostalgia piece or an exercise in nostalgia? And then I read this biography of Joe that someone had given me for my birthday like five years earlier that I would never read. And at first, it's written by Ron Padgett, who's a very well-known and well-respected poet. And at first I was reading it, and I, Ron's straight, and I was just like, this really feels like a straight guy, kind of like looking at the life of his gay friend from the outside, and it's kind of dry. And, but what he was actually doing is like recording every memory he had of Joe, not in the same form, but um, in a kind of chronology. And I started reading it, and midway through the book, I was so emotionally engaged, just being like, this is so deep to see like a really, really vivid account of a friendship because friendship's really important to me. I have a lot of really close friends, but it's rare to really recount the yeah. development of that, you know? And then by the end of the book, I was sobbing reading the book. It was just an incredible testament to friendship. It's mm. one of the best things I've ever read about friendship. And friendship between artists is like kind of more intense than normal friendship, I think. Mm. And um, because like if you connect to someone over what they do um, and it goes both ways, that can be very powerful in a non-competitive, supportive way. And um, so then I thought, well, okay, I'm gonna interview Ron because he's cool, he's a really interesting guy, he's kind of a character. And um, what if I combine these two sources to kind of create like a, to, to kind of stim simulate a conversation between mm -hmm. these two friends who can't speak anymore. And that conversation doesn't have to be linear. It can kind of jump all over the place and go between the past and the present and mirror the elliptical quality of Joe's poem. And, and uh, it was hard for me to figure out how to do that, but a sound designer who I collaborated with on Teenage also mm -hmm. 
edited that, and he's he's a radio producer, so he's really good at storytelling, audio-based storytelling. And then, um, yeah, so that's how that kind of came about. It, and that film became about friendship, and I'd actually really like to make another film about creative friendship. I'm trying to figure out what that might be, but um, it's a theme that really interests me. Mm. And was that an installation at any point, or was that like an early concept? Yeah. That, yeah. That film was actually commissioned by a museum at Bard College in New York, and um, I installed it in a gallery, which I really liked. And, you know, I'm kind of like my work to be in dialogue with fine artists and mm. the art world, and not just because art and art making is the subject of my work sometimes, but because I'm just interested in that discourse. But, um, yeah, it was cool to do that, but beyond that opportunity, it's mostly screened as a short film yeah, at yeah. festivals. But um, yeah, I'm interested in making work that has a narrative, but that can unfold in an elliptical way mm. in a kind of installation. Mm. It's interesting that it shares that sound design uh, quality with um, Teenage, because the archival footage is also something that's present in that. It's, yeah. Is it like a syphilis documentary that becomes like the avatar for Joe in that? Yeah, how'd yeah. you know that? Research, the archive. <laughs> Did, oh, really? <laughs> I. Um, that's crazy that you knew that. Did I say it somewhere, or did you yeah, know that? Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not well acquainted with um, But there's like, it's funny because the thing that's crazy is that I've talked about another syphilis documentary from the 20s that mm. I used in a different context, and this is a syphilis documentary from the 50s. <laughs> but, um, so, although maybe the one from the 20s isn't syphilis, it's just, you know, sexually transmitted yeah, diseases yeah. in general. But anyways, off topic. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the thing that's cool about a lot of newsreels and public health films is that they're real people from mm, the era yeah. and they're very staged and shotless and there's something campy about them. But when you take them out of context, you're seeing real people in the clothes that they actually wore and um, they're just covered in kind of wide, medium and close-up shots. And... Um, there was this one color film of this blonde kid who um, takes a girl out on a date and they have sex and he gets syphilis and then he's walking with his friends and he's embarrassed to see her and he doesn't know what to do and there's a confrontation he has a meltdown with his doctor. Of course, that's not the... the I've taken that totally out of context yeah. and, it's, and he becomes a kind of avatar for Joe and it's almost like he's you know, struggling with his sexuality and doesn't feel understood by his peers, and, you know, so I've taken it out of context. But um, it's, uh, it's fun to kind of re-scramble the meaning, the, origin, the intended meaning of some of this material. And it's, it's, uh, it's documentary material, even though it's staged. And, and I make documentaries, even though a lot of what I do is very staged mm. and scripted. It also makes the audience aware that there is this relationship between the audio and the visual that is maybe at some point symbolic or a projection. And that's, Mm -hmm. Okay, like 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 versus the reenactments where we were talking about some people may get them, some people may think they're legit. I think that in in this case, people know that it's being yeah. kind of ascribed a meaning that wasn't there initially. Yeah. And you know, it's to me, it's a punk strategy. It's yeah. kind of like you know, John early on when we were working, he talked about um, in the '70s, punks would take thrift clothes and they would cut them up and reassemble them with safety pins mm. into something new and. He called it living collage, and I thought that was a really beautiful idea, just conceptually, like, what is a living collage? Mm. And I said, that could be a philosophy for the filmmaking in teenage. You take all these voices and images and clips of youth from previous youth cultures, and you re-scramble them and, and reassemble them into something that feels new. Yeah. And it's something that takes place in the past, but it's about the future. And that kind of futuristic thinking is very 
punk rock and that kind of collage aesthetic obviously is is the uh, iconic punk look and um, yeah I don't think about it in theoretical terms although maybe as a student I would have mm. um, now it's comes kind of second nature in terms of trying to use imagery non-literally non mm. um, you know as filmmakers especially documentary filmmakers you're often trying to like illustrate or cover a scene so you have this interview of someone we're talking about blah 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 and then you want to illustrate it cover it or if you're you have a scene a written scene in a script and you got to cover it with different shots and it's it can get very easy to do the literal thing it's mm. like i'm talking about a bunny and now we cut to a bunny or you know like we got to cover this written scene in like a wide shot and then a, and then two close reaction shots mm. and it's always nice to try to push yourself to think about a way to kind of um, to not literally illustrate something, but to kind of still activate the idea that's being said mm. or the dramatic idea that's kind of at the core of a scene. So um, to me, it's now an intuitive thing. It's like, what, what imagery do I have at my disposal to cover this scene, um, but that doesn't feel completely literal, mm. you know? And we talked about essay films. Is there a point where you're gonna maybe inject yourself a little more literally into into your films? Uh, have it connect more. I, I like writing personal essays. Yeah. I don't I have no interest in making a personal film in which I'm talking about myself. Or even like even just like <laughs> you know like it's implied that things are running through you and your choice of imagery. Yeah, and There's yeah. that connection with the subject matter, but I was wondering if at any point there was it would just creep in a little bit more or. I don't know. I feel like with teenage, the approach is pretty subjective yeah, yeah. in general, and that it feels like my hands heavy yeah. on the on the film. There's definitely a more straightforward way that that film could have been mm -hmm. made. I don't know who would do it or how it would be made or who would make it. Mm. But um, I feel like um, it's often a balance. I don't want to make my filmmaking choices be about me showing my kind of range. I yeah. want to make filmmaking choices often that just serve the subject matter. So actually the Arthur Russell film, originally I conceptualized it in a much more experimental way and I came to realize, you know, people don't know who Arthur Russell is and I have a kind of, I have a platform now to kind of tell his story and to introduce his work to a broader audience and that's kind of more important than me um, kind of like showing the world that I can do this in, ex in an experimental mm. way. And some people perhaps perceive that film as having kind of experimental inclinations, but I perceived it as a fairly straightforward yeah. and, and conventionalized film. And um, yeah, teen whatever, I guess in teenage I did go a little further in terms of stylization, but I felt that the subject matter demanded it in yeah. a certain way. If you're gonna make a film about teenage, how can you have old people telling you what happened or historians kind of locking this down. Um, it needs that kind of sense of becoming mm. and that dreamlike quality makes sense for this subject. And just the kind of, um, I don't know, that melancholy that some of the actors have feels really true to the kind of emotional experience of growing up in that, in that phase of life. Mm. But on the other hand, it still also has those epigraphs, the epigrams, like there is that m movement towards more of a objective. Uh, yeah, I was trying to do t a lot of things, maybe too many things in that film, but uh, you know, once I was trying to keep the historical context alive so you know where you are and kind of generally when and yeah. what's happening in the bigger world without kind of spoon feeding general history that people know. Mm. 
because um, even if a teenager sees this film, they, they've been in school and have learned a lot of this general history. I feel like most viewers who will see the film don't need tons of general history context, but some is there to kind of give a sense of time and place. Mm. And um, yeah, it was always a balance between giving context and, and just giving an emotional interpretation of what was happening. And mm. I've definitely leaned more towards the emotional interpretation than the context, but I was always trying to strike a balance. It's a film that in a way I see as kind of overflowing yeah. with ideas and kind of imagery and experiences. And I like films like that. I'm drawn to films that are kind of spilling over the edges a little bit. And that kind of is the ending. It just literally spills over. You have this kind of brava montage. How hard was that to like narrow down? Like you have this, basically everything that's happened since. Yeah, and it was hard. It, it was hard, but it was kind of intuitive. It yeah. was more just like get a bunch of stuff cut it together, find kind of a visual logic for it, and then start analyzing, well, what about this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and it started very political, and that felt like propaganda to me, and I wanted it to be kind of more just partying. But then the kind of oppression stuff needed to be there. You know, it was, it was really, like everything in that film, there's 20 million things that you could have included. Mm, yeah. And I think that's the hardest part of teenage is, um, there's so much more that potentially could have been included and it's a kind of film that provokes a viewer to say, but what about this or what about that? And I think I just had to follow the best material and bring the material I found to life mm. and to try to tell a story that has a beginning and, and where there's movement towards an ending and to um, do it in a way that I felt would be pleasurable for mm. the viewer. Because um, oftentimes, more intellectually demanding material feels um, like hard work. Yeah, yeah. And I think this film is easy to watch. That was a real goal for me. Mm. It's funny you mentioned like you could have choo chosen so many different things because watching Arthur Russell, the one thing that comes to mind because it's a musician is your soundtrack. Like, what are the Arthur Russell tracks you're going to use? How oh, long yeah. are they going to play? And that was so random yeah. how I did that. I would just kind of like. First of all, any filmmaker will tell you, you put like temp music in and then it's just like, it never goes away. Like, and you never want to go away. And when you're putting score and you're like, ah. But um, you know, it's, uh, for me, it's so random what music I dump into a rough cut yeah. and then I get used to it. And with Arthur Russell, it was totally like that. I was like, this song kind of would feel right here. And it was just super non-precious, intuitively put stuff in and it would stay. And it was towards the end of that film, I remember thinking, well, we need something from this body of work. and. Hmm. We need to strike a kind of balance of all the different kinds of music, but it all begins in a pretty like sloppy, intuitive way hmm. for me. And I think it's true for writers too. When you just you have to just start kind of writing stuff and putting it on a page, and then you start crafting it and picking it apart and analyzing it to death and taking the life out of it, hmm. <laughs> and then bringing <laughs> the life back. That that's how I work filmmaking wise too. I just kind of dump a lot out there and then shape. I mean, the analogy that I like to use is it's like, it's like a boulder, your topic. And I like to just like explode it into a million little pieces and then really just like anal retentively organize everything until I can like have all my ducks in the line and then take things and kind of put it into a new shape. I mean, yeah. that's, that's kind of process wise in a global sense. That's what I like to do is to create systems to process like complex narratives and complex information, a lot of material, and then to organize it obsessively and then to kind of reassemble it into something that has a shape and a form, mm. you know. It also seems like it's getting, your scope's getting bigger though, just in, in the subject matter too, right? 
Yeah, but I would be happy to make a film about a tiny little <laughs> subject next. I mean, the way I work is there's maybe there's some continuity in what I'm doing. I guess I'm, I'm searching to describe yeah. it right now. But overall, I feel like I'm interested in going in radically different directions for each film. Mm. The Joe Brainer film is kind of like a bridge from Wild Combination mm. to this. It's a queer biography, but it's comprised of archival imagery of teenagers and youth. And um, it's, it's, it's driven by a separate audio kind of track that has a kind of loose lyrical feeling to it. I mean, those things, I guess there's always threads in people's work, but my goal would be to do something completely unexpected for myself when I make my next film. I, it won't be a cultural history of teenagers. It won't deal with youth culture. I think it will be something totally different. Mm. And the elderly? Yeah, it'll be about old people. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much, Matt. Yeah, thanks. Cool. I, I was talking about all sorts of shit. I hope it was relevant. No, it's all great.